Hi there, I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks for listening for the week of August 21st, 2023. In science news. There's perhaps no symbol more strongly associated with Arizona than the saguaro cactus, but this summer's record-breaking heat has been so extreme, even some of these desert-adapted plants have died. And as Catherine Davis-Young reports, scientists are concerned about the future of the species in a warming climate. At the entrance to Phoenix's Desert Botanical Garden recently, signs warn visitors to stay hydrated and take caution in the heat. Black shade cloths cover small round barrel cactuses and leafy agaves to protect them from the intense sun. And a row of prickly pear cactuses known for their bright green pads look pale and yellow, as Kevin Holtine, the garden's director of research, points out. This is the impact of uh, excess heat. It's like a a cactus sunburn. A cactus sunburn, exactly right. Holtine says he's never seen heat stress quite this severe at the garden before. And these plants are watered and meticulously cared for. When we walk to the edge of the garden property where plants aren't professionally maintained, the effects of heat are even more visible. We come to a towering saguaro. Holtine guesses it's at least 75 years old. It has 10 huge arms reaching toward the sky, but one is on the ground. In fact, let's look at this one over here. You can see there is an arm that actually fell at one point off of this plant. Saguaros can be 40 feet tall and live 150 years. Holtine says they're even hardier than other cactus species because they're so well adapted to extreme conditions. But summers have never been this extreme in Phoenix before. Holtine says the cactuses can't breathe in the carbon dioxide they need when overnight temperatures don't cool off. And when they're dehydrated, their firm outer skin shrivels. Since the plants weigh hundreds of pounds... Eventually, you start to lose structural integrity near the base, and then the whole plant will just fall over. And that's happening more and more. Before this year, the hottest summer on record in Phoenix was 2020. Holtine says the garden has about a thousand saguaros, and typically 10 per year die. But since 2020, it's been more like 40 per year. When you add the added stress from 2020 to what appears to be perhaps an even warmer summer now, uh, I expect that the rates of mortality are probably going to continue to ramp up for the next several years. Down south in the Tucson area, July temperatures were about 8 degrees cooler than in Phoenix. At Saguaro National Park, there's been no significant damage reported recently among the namesake cactuses. Still, park biologist Don Swan says it has been hotter and drier than normal, and saguaro seedlings struggle in these conditions. They store water in their stems, and that water allows them to be resilient to really hot and dry conditions. But when they're very small, they can't store very much water, and so they rely on the soil. So even if mature saguaros in the park have fared better than their counterparts in Phoenix, the change in climate is still a threat. We've been in a long-term drought really now since the uh, mid-1990s, and so we've seen a lot fewer saguaros entering the population in the last you know, 25, 30 years. Saguaros are not an endangered species, but scientists are beginning to think about how to ensure these cactuses can survive into the future. We want to be able to plant saguaros that will be the most well-adapted to 
basically our new hotter environment. Helen Rowe is with the School of Earth and Sustainability at Northern Arizona University. She's working to find ways to protect the iconic cactuses, along with researchers from the Desert Botanical Garden, University of Arizona, and National Autonomous University of Mexico. Rowe says there are parts of the desert, even hotter and drier than Phoenix, where saguaros grow. Her team plans to take seeds from those cactuses, along with other saguaro populations, and plant them in northern Mexico, Tucson, and Phoenix to compare how they perform. So that would give kind of a a range of the growing conditions, and we could see which is best adapted for each site. And which genetic lines can survive the harshest summers. But the project isn't fully funded yet, and since the plants are so slow growing, it could take years, even decades, before researchers know if it's possible to breed a more heat-resilient saguaro. In the meantime, Kevin Holtine says hotter temperatures are already taking a toll. It's a bit alarming. Clearly, the impacts are pretty dramatic. As the Sonoran Desert continues to warm, Holtine says it's hard to guess exactly what's in store for this species. But he says... Are they going to be more and more difficult to maintain? Absolutely. The end of this summer, he says, may just be the beginning of this story. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In the news. Economic justice activists led a drive to send Glendale's updated development plan for a Vegas-style resort to a voter referendum. But the Glendale City Council has neutered their effort by reinstating the old deal signed in 2020. Matthew Casey reports. Roughly two months after unanimously approving the updated development plan for a huge resort being built south of State Farm Stadium, each Glendale City Council member voted to repeal that amended deal. City resident Sean Foley helped gather signatures so voters could decide the project's fate, and he spoke at Tuesday's meeting. It would be extremely disappointing to me if the City Council were to turn around and pass a similar development agreement in a few weeks providing that today's vote was just avoid the will of the voters. Glendale's mayor and vice mayor defended the resort project as a major source of predicted future revenue and a big job creator in a city which many residents leave when they go to work. Matthew Casey, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In Fronteras News. It's been two years this month since the Biden administration evacuated more than 70,000 Afghans from their country. That, after American forces withdrew from Afghanistan and the Taliban took control, most of those evacuees are still in legal limbo now. From the Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick has more. It was August 2021 when Manaz Akbari stepped off a plane at a U.S. military base in Wisconsin to a crowd of Americans. And they were waiting for us when we came, like, All of them uh, stand and clap for us. That was Akbari's first time in the U.S. But she'd worked alongside American soldiers for years back in Afghanistan. She was the commander of an Afghan military unit called the Female Tactical Platoon, an elite all-women team that joined U.S. Special Forces on high-stakes raids on suspected Taliban and ISIS fighters. The work made her a Taliban target. So Akbari understood that the claps ringing out that day in Wisconsin were because people were relieved. She and other Afghans had made it out safely. Still, she says, I didn't feel good. Like I feel to myself that, uh, okay, I I am alive. <laughs> I, I am here. What about my family? What about my parents, my brother? 
Two years later, Akbari is still asking those same questions. I reached her on Zoom this month from her home in Maryland. She managed to evacuate with her two nieces back in 2021. But the rest of her family is spread out all over the world today. On phone calls with her parents in Iran, Akbari says they always ask when they'll see each other next. It's really hard to me because I don't have, like, uh, asylum. My status, so I cannot go there. And she can't bring them here. That's because, like most of the more than 80,000 Afghan evacuees in the U.S. now, Akbari came here on humanitarian parole. It's a special status that allows foreign nationals to come to the U.S. quickly and apply for a work permit. It's been used for decades to respond to crises, like recently with the war in Ukraine. But the status is temporary. Akbari's only option to stay here permanently now is to get asylum. Tucson immigration attorney Mo Goldman says Afghans are being prioritized for asylum screenings, but it can still take months. On the other hand, waiting for a decision is taking an extended period of time. So no matter how you look at it, it seems like everything is just dragging out. Data compiled last year by the research group Track shows there are more than 1.6 million pending asylum cases nationwide. Goldman says on the ground, that means even his Afghan clients, whose process is supposed to be sped up, are waiting more than a year for a decision. It causes delays for these individuals to achieve greater things. Meanwhile, the humanitarian parole status and the work permit attached to it is set to expire at the end of this month for most Afghans. Evacuees are allowed to extend their parole for another two years right now. Rebecca Edmondson is a U.S. Army veteran who worked with the female tactical platoon in Afghanistan and helped them evacuate in 2021. Now she's trying to help them stay. I don't know really, you know, how to describe the way I'm feeling other than just tired. Um, you know, feeling like you're screaming at the top of your lungs for for years at a time. Edmondson has joined the Afghan women soldiers on numerous trips to D.C. over the last two years to advocate for the Afghan Adjustment Act. The legislation would provide a pathway to citizenship for some evacuees. It failed to pass last year, and a new version is stagnant in Congress for now. It's very disheartening to, on one hand, feel like, you know, they're notionally safe, but it certainly isn't a victory in the in the big scheme of things. While it waits there, Afghans like Akbari, the female platoon commander, are stuck. She got her asylum interview last September, but she hasn't heard anything since then. In phone calls back to Iran, she keeps finding excuses for her family. Every time I said, okay, I will come in several months. And they say that when your several months finish. <laughs> She's just not sure exactly when that'll be. Alisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. In business news, the National Park Service says annual visitor spending in Arizona topped $1 billion. From our business desk, Christina Estes reports. More than 10 million visitors spent a billion dollars in 2022. The majority of that spending was in and around Grand Canyon National Park. The Park Service says tourism supported 16,000 direct and indirect jobs with a cumulative economic impact of $1.8 billion. The country's most visited park is the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. Straddling the borders of North Carolina and Tennessee, visitors spent more than $3 billion in the area. Nationwide, the bulk of spending went to lodging, restaurants, and gas. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In education news. 
Northwest Valley residents in the Peoria Unified School District have until 4.30 p.m. on Monday to submit an application to finish the term of a resigning governing board member. Peoria is among the largest districts in Arizona with roughly 36,000 students. Matthew Casey reports. Applications to serve the final 16 months of Rebecca Hill's school board term have to be submitted in person at Peoria District Headquarters. Maricopa County School Superintendent Steve Watson will eventually pick the replacement. Top qualifications are herding dollars into classrooms and a commitment to improving Peoria. But the last one, which I think speaks to the politics of it all, is we want you to be temperamentally ready to govern. This means being thoughtful, cautious, and polite while enduring the job's challenges. The Peoria School Board can recommend up to three candidates for Watson to appoint. He still plans to interview every eligible applicant. Matthew Casey, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. The telecommunications network for the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community is reinvesting in its residents a year after a major disruption in service. Gabriel Piatrazio has more. The Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community has spent $2 million modernizing its infrastructure. Last August, an internal power failure affecting all 500 business and 1,500 residential customers prompted the company to make the new investment, according to its president, Bill Bryan. We started really examining in fine detail the status of all of our power and environmental infrastructure. We said, you know what, we're just going to go to all the newest technology. New batteries, condenser and AC systems, among other upgrades, are meant to strengthen the network from future disruptions. Bryant added that a lot of those renovations have already been completed. There's always a great deal more to do. But the rest will be finished during the 2024 fiscal year. Gabriel Pietrazio, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And finally, in original productions. We wondered why Phoenix's official weather readings were taken at Sky Harbor Airport. Here's the show co-host Mark Brody with some answers. Well, we've gotten a lot of emails from listeners this summer complaining about exactly that as national and international headlines racked out about how crazy hot it was here. So we decided to find out. And for that, my co-host Lauren Gilger turned to state climatologist Ariane Saffel, beginning with a little Phoenix weather history. You know, it's an interesting history to understand how our weather stations all came about. They actually started in the 1840s with telegraphs, and the telegraph stations were given weather stations, and those were set up all across the country. And Arizona as a territory had some of those telegraphs and weather stations. And so some of our weather stations go back all the way till the, you know, like the early 1890s, right in through there. Um, And then before we were a state, there wasn't much population in and around, but there were places where the Weather Bureau was located. That was before we had the National Weather Service. Mm. So in the 1890s, the Weather Bureau had weather stations set up in Phoenix. Hmm. And usually it was an individual station where the meteorologists would go out and take the observations once a day. So how hot it was, how cold it was, how much precipitation fell at that one station. And then as things happened with the airport in the 1920s, we had Sky Harbor starting to be built. Um, The Weather Bureau put a weather station there at Sky Harbor Airport. 
and started monitoring what was going on there. Now things were moved around a little bit, but not much. But then that became the official weather station for Phoenix right there at Sky Harbor. That's so interesting. So it's been like this for a very long time. Tell us what happens there at this central weather station at Sky Harbor. Like, how do they measure things? How do you keep sort of an official log? Right. In the 1990s, that's when a lot of automated weather stations were installed. And these are at a lot of our airports because consider what the aircraft needs to have. They need to have visibility. They need to have winds. And so you'll find a lot of the official weather stations installed at airports. So here in the metro area at Deer Valley, at Falcon Field, at Gateway, there are official weather stations that are automated. So you can get the air temperature, the dew point temperature, which is moisture. You can get visibility so you can see how many clouds are covering the sky and so on. And this is all automated. They take minute observations. Mm. And so usually you can see those minute observations. In the 1980s, the flood control district of Maricopa County, Steve Waters was the flood control manager, started installing weather stations in the metro area for flood control. But they've installed upwards of 40 weather stations now in the metropolitan area. And so when you're looking for your precipitation in your neck of the woods, you can go to their website and you'll get real information about not only temperature, but you'll get that precipitation. And that's a little bit more, we call it a density with Mm -hmm. our weather networks. So we get a little bit more accuracy. Okay. So we have been hearing from some listeners throughout this heat wave of a summer who are really frustrated by this, like that the official temperature comes from Sky Harbor because people will say it's hotter there. It's maybe drier there. It's like a heat island. It's all cement. And, you know, they didn't experience 31 days over 110 degrees like this record set where they live in the valley. So, you know, is Sky Harbor giving us a bad rap? Sky Harbor is the official weather station for Phoenix. But as you know, when we spread out away from that kind of point and you go to Falcon Field, you go to East Mesa, you go to Buckeye, you go to West Side of Town, you're going to have different temperatures because you're moving away from that urban heat island. What we're trying to do with the weather stations is just have them accurate Um, making sure that they're um, quality controlled, there's folks in there making sure that everything's operating correctly, and that it's in a representative location. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, a representative location for Phoenix is something in the middle of what we call our urban heat island. So yes, it's true, folks on the outer periphery, as we're heading away from that Phoenix Sky Harbor area, you're going to have cooler temperatures for sure. So you get this complaint a lot too, I'm guessing. (laughs) I think it's helpful to understand because, you know, just even in your own backyard, you can have kind of that change in temperature. I lived in Tempe, which was about three miles from Sky Harbor, and it was in one of those historic neighborhoods with all the trees and Mm -hmm, all of the mm -hmm. flood irrigation. And I was about 10 degrees cooler because of that microclimate. So I want folks to understand that, you know, maybe they can do that in their own backyard and keep temperatures a little bit cooler. Okay, so what about when it comes to rain? I mean, we've 
barely had a monsoon season this year, but we have had a few storms and this just happened, right? Like there was rain in certain parts of the valley. It happened at my house a few weeks ago. Big storm, lots of rain, tons of water everywhere. But there was no official rain at Sky Harbor. So there's no <laughs> official rain on our reports. Right. Yeah, the official rain record. Yeah, so it is Phoenix Sky Harbor, unfortunately. And the reason why we do that, climatologically, we want the longest record we possibly can. And so we want to go back in time to see if there have been any trends or changes in temperatures or precipitation. So that's kind of why we use that as well. Looking at the precipitation, fortunately, having all of those Maricopa County flood control alert stations that help us see that you know, there are other places that are getting that precipitation. Mm -hmm. And also we know in summer, those convective thunderstorms are just hit and miss. You're getting all the rain, your neighbor down the street isn't getting any, but hopefully over time, climatologically, so long periods of time, it kind of pans out and, and equals out. Does it usually? Like, can we tell whether or not that Sky Harbor official tracking is in the end pretty representative? It is pretty representative. Mm. So some years we miss, some years we get a whole bunch. And then over time, we haven't really seen any changes in the amount of precipitation. If we zoom into one summer, you're going to see changes. But if we zoom out to longer time frames, we haven't seen that much of a change. Okay. So last question for you then. Um, Tell us a little bit about what we can do in this. Like, is there any way we as sort of citizen reporters can can help you track this better and like be more representative of what's happening in various parts of the valley? Yeah, exactly. That that density, having those those stations installed all over the place. As a climatologist, there's no such thing as too many weather stations. And so I encourage folks to participate in this with me. Um, We have a system called COCO-ROS, which is a volunteer network for weather observations, getting that weather report. And really, it's just that precipitation. You only have to do it you know, for a 24 hour period. So you don't have to go out and look at it every hour, but you look at it the next morning, how much rain fell in your backyard and you report that. And that helps us. That goes right to the National Weather Service. I start looking at those observations and it helps kind of fill in some of those gaps that we have with those missing weather stations. So at least when it comes to rain, we can help change the record in some way. Okay. (laughs) We absolutely want to have that information because you know, if it doesn't get in that rain gauge. Mm-hmm. Did it really happen? Yeah. We want to have as many rain gauges out there as possible. All right. You got it. Erin Ann Saffel, Arizona State Climatologist, Director of the Arizona State Climate Office, joining us to talk more about this. Erin Ann, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for all of the information and explaining this. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for your time. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station. Stay hydrated.